0: This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Brent Giannata, a writer and former analyst for the CIA, who draws a thought provoking parallel between ISIS and the QAnon movement, and those who stormed Capitol Hill on January 6th. Also, I'll talk about the disastrous vaccine rollout and how there is nothing close to equity in who gets the doses. And now, The Nexus brent Giannata is a writer media commentator and journalist based in los angeles who also was a counter-terrorism analyst at the central intelligence agency from 2010 to 2015 one of the many problem spots he worked on regarded the islamic state or commonly known as isis this week, he published an op ed in the LA Times titled, What I Learned About Islamic State Applies to QAnon 2. It's an intriguing, thoughtful piece that shows our preconceived notions about QAnon might not be accurate. Brent Giannata, welcome to the Nexus.
1: Hey, thanks, Art. It's great to be here. It's been seven weeks since the Capitol
0: riots happened. And as a DC area resident, it was jarring, if not a traumatic experience for me to say the least. Obviously, one of the groups fueling the riot or insurrection was QAnon. What can you tell me about them as a group, especially for people who have heard the term but may not know much about them?
1: Yeah. So QAnon is a conspiracy theory, but that is very much an understatement. It's an extremely convoluted and complex conspiracy theory. And the basic tenets are that there is a cabal of liberal politicians and rich people who are secretly running the entire world and are Satan worshipers who are sex trafficking children who eat children for power. And they're doing all this in secret. And that Donald Trump is the person who is going to take this cabal down in uh, in a day that is called the storm and there's another person named q who is inside the government and has top secret clearance and sends coded messages out to the masses to let them know that the storm is coming and to get ready for it
0: wow i i I don't know how anyone could not hear that description and not say wow or not just be like kind of floored by that i mean it's it's I, I in the me in the reality based world, I, I can't hear that without almost wanting to burst out laughing. Um, how, how does anyone believe in this stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds it doesn't comport to most people's sense of reality. Right. Uh, so one of them is that Hillary Clinton, you know, she eats babies and she drinks the blood and there's a chemical in their blood. that kind of gives her these kind of superpowers. And so, yeah. The way most of us see the world, I mean, this probably, this can't possibly be true, but, you know, CNN came out with a survey that said about 9% of Americans believe this. And 9% is, you know, it's low and it sounds good that it's low, but that's still about 30 million people. And so I thought about the research I did on people who are joining ISIS. And I mean, through the years of following this group and targeting, individual members who would leave places like Paris and Brussels, like the most beautiful cities in the world, to go to a dusty, impoverished war zone in northern Iraq or northern Syria. I mean, I, I deduced there had to be something really, really powerful going on. And so I, I tended to equate it with religion. So in every religion, there's stuff that doesn't make logical sense, that seems metaphysical and can't really be explained by the sort of rules that we all acknowledge govern. Our world. And that those things are believed nominally because of the massive psychological benefits that believing these things uh, gives to the individual. So a religion is to me is is something that delivers psychological stability. And once an individual stops feeling that those psychological benefits, then that person will start to stray, or they'll start to leave the flock, as they say. So someone in QAnon will believe this pretty ridiculous stuff because they get a lot of things with that belief with embracing that belief one they get a community of 30 million people who believe what they believe and they f- they feel like they're a team they're almost a family and that they have this exclusive knowledge to really you know pernicious stuff number 2 is they get this huge sense of morality that they are an ethical person that their collective efforts to take down Hillary Clinton, George Soros, and all these other liberal politicians to stop this child sex trafficking ring. I mean, that is, you know, that's like a personal campaign that infuses the person with hu- with a huge feeling of ethics that maybe they didn't have mm-hmm. before. And, um, and, yeah, so in ISIS, there's kind of a similar thing. I mean, these guys who left Europe or left the United States or Australia these great places to go live in a in a desert. I mean, they thought that they were going to take down the West in a military campaign and turn the world into an Islamic utopia. And, you know, women would be cared for, um, children would be cared for, they, they thought it was going to usher in a better world. That's exactly what QAnon thinks too. So, and the point of my article was just to try to explain that, that <clears throat> there are definitely deranged people who have very serious mental illnesses in both QAnon and in ISIS. And that's, there's very clear evidence of that. But a lot of these people are very, are very regular, uh, very normal. They have normal jobs. They're educated. They have families that love them and don't think that they're deranged. But that there was something kind of missing in their lives. Um, and probably they had expectations for their lives that didn't quite pan out. Um, In the case of ISIS, foreign fighters from Europe, they were mostly educated in technology, but they couldn't get they couldn't get a computer science job, um, maybe because of because of uh, bad behavior, or because they spent some time in prison or because of discrimination. Um, those guys, they expected a lot from the world. They expected a lot from their adult lives. They didn't get it. And same with a lot of these QAnon followers. They are typically middle aged, typically white, typically Christian. And, you know, maybe they thought that they would have a career that would give them lots of financial stability, be able to buy a great house, be respecting their community. And maybe that just didn't quite work out. Maybe they're in some debt. And that is the type of thing psychologically that makes people very vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Hmm.
0: Let's let's probe that a bit. So and let's back up even a little more. When you saw the Capitol riots unfurl, when you were like. Watching this and 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 then maybe in the aftermath, was your immediate thought that this was similar to Islamic State? Was your immediate thought that you were seeing already parallels, or did that take some time for it to germinate in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think it felt pretty immediate to me. So so Qanon is not the only group that was involved in the Capitol Hill riots. We're also you know, white nationalist militias, um, Christian extremists, and whatnot. But that kind of zeitgeist where, you know, these, these people are taking actions on the premise that they can bust into the Capitol building and somehow change the foundations of American democracy. I mean, it's, it's so silly, but they were so determined. You could see it in their eyes. You could hear it in their voices when you, you know, you watch the video and you hear the audio. I mean, these guys are fully committed. There's a, you know, I, a religious zealotry there. Um, that yeah, it felt very, very similar to what what we dealt with uh, with ISIS.
0: Right, and so when you started to work on this piece, you noticed that there were parallels and such, and that kind of brings us back to. The work you did at the CIA. So, you know, one thing that's um fascinating to me is I've done a couple of podcasts now about the CIA. And um two weeks ago I interviewed Jack Devine, who was once the director of operations there. How did you come to work for the agency?
1: Yeah, so um when 9-11 happened, I was in college and I had already become an international relations major, um, and so I'm sitting on the couch on that fateful day, and towers come down. I'm sitting around all my buddies who are business majors and and film majors, and they asked me, so who was that guy on the, on the screen when they showed Osama bin Laden? And I said, I didn't know. And I felt like I let these guys down in their moment of need. So from that day on, pretty much every morning, I'm reading the paper reading about Al Qaeda, I immediately started taking Arabic, and just decided like, this is what I need to do with my life. It felt like the most pressing thing going on in the world. And I just didn't know enough about it. I just wanted sort of all the knowledge I could possibly get. So I uh, got into a graduate program in Egypt, of all places. So I flew to Cairo for a year, I got a degree in Middle East Studies, just amazing, incredible experience. Mm. I came back to the States and uh, I moved to DC and I got a job at a non human rights nonprofit doing Middle East stuff. And I threw in an application at the CIA because, you know, when you when you speak some Arabic and, you know, the Middle East a bit, there's not there's not a ton of options for you professionally. So Mm. the intelligence organizations, those are kind of like an obvious target that you should think about. Uh, But I honestly didn't want to work for the CIA in the beginning. Because I learned from my time in the Middle East that that organization is pretty much known as the enemy. They've done a lot of like pretty rough stuff around the world that is you know not legal and not really in keeping with international laws. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be an enemy. I wanted to be you know welcome there. And I don't want to you know people to look at me with suspicion. I kind of fall in love a bit with the people and the culture and stuff. I just didn't want that you know want that stank on me. Uh, but the longer I was in DC, and you probably know this, I met a lot of people in the government and I you know, whispered to people that I trust that I'm applying and they said, wow, that is that is awesome. If you get that job, it is incredible. And they would <laughs> tell me about the travel opportunities, the language learning opportunities, the people you're going to meet, the opportunities you'll have. Um, and I started changing my mind. I got really, really excited about it. Um, then I got a rejection letter saying, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and... So I was pretty bummed, but, you know, it sounded like a hard thing, to, hard thing to get into. I joined a, an ice hockey team. I played ice hockey my whole life. And on this team, I met a guy who worked and I told him, you guys just rejected me, and he said, send me a resume. And suddenly, my application was resurrected, <laughs> and uh, I waited about another year and a half as the uh, security clearance process. And then in uh, mid-2010, um, I came in for orientation.
0: Wow. All right. So in terms of, I mean, I don't want to give away state secrets here and such, but was it as dark and shadowy and, you know, elite as it's portrayed in media and entertainment? Does, does the CIA live up to the hype?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. So the things that that most people assume the CIA do, the CIA does lots of that. I mean, it's, it's common knowledge that CIA sends people out all over the world and recruits people to steal secrets for them. And this is, this is one of the, you know, pillars of national security. We need to do this. The U.S. needs to do things like that to ensure security, not only for the United States, but for everybody around the world. So that definitely happens. Um, and, you know, there are a large handful. Of moments in my career and in everyone else's career where something happens you get an email or you're doing something and you and you have to step back and you just think jesus this is insane this is so crazy that i'm doing this right now <laughs> um but on the other hand there are many many days working in the cia where you think you're in the movie office space like where I'm standing, standing over my printer and it's not printing and I just want to hack it with a baseball bat. And where, you know, someone who is for all intents and purposes pretty incompetent is suddenly in charge of you and you just can't get anything done. And the, just the wildest stuff is being said and not said at meetings. I mean, it's got all the trappings of a frustrating office space, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you put all this stuff together. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bizarre place to be. But at the end of the day, I mean, the mission of the CIA, especially now, especially the last 10 years has just been, has been a bit of a golden age for the organization. You know, in the early 2000s, there was the um, enhanced interrogation scandal um, involving members of Al Qaeda. And before that, you know, there's very shady stuff happening in Central America. And Iran and you know all sorts of different places that, you know, it 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 left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. But I got lucky to join the organization at a time at maybe a moral zenith when we all decided, not only the grunts like me, but the higher-ups and the members of Congress on the intelligence committees, that we're not gonna do this work the wrong way anymore. That torture is not gonna be a thing, that secret prisons are not gonna be a thing, that we have to live up to our ideals. We're going to do this, this type of work the right way. So in that sense, I got really, really lucky to be there for that.
0: And again, obviously, say or don't say what is um, allowed, but what would a typical day be like for you as an analyst? I know we we see in the movies about um, agents and people traversing the globe, but in terms of the deep dive that you were doing into the Islamic State, what would that entail?
1: Yeah, so um, my day starts out with logging in about nine or ten different passwords <laughs> to get from to get from right outside the gate to fully in work mode. It's 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 more than ten passwords that I have to log into at different places. Um, once I'm up and running for the day. It's usually a morning meeting, and uh, there's you know a team of analysts that are working on something under the same umbrella, but they all have their, their different, their specific lane in the road. And there's a boss, and analytic bosses are great. They're they're very hands off. They don't direct you to do much. Um, they try to make your work as easy as possible, and so. It's really on us as analysts to figure out what is most important and what needs to be written about. And that was, just, that was one of the best parts of the job by far. Uh, start out in the morning, I'll have, like, if, if you go to Google, you can set up an alert and you can punch in keywords and Google will crawl the internet and anything that sort of pops on the internet with your keyword will populate in an email or whatever. And so I basically had that, but for a counter, specifically counterterrorism, you know, crawler. And so I would have, you know, 100, 300 reports that could have something to do or or have some mention of something that I'm looking at. And so the first few hours of every day is just reading as fast as possible, trying to figure out if there's anything crazy out there that is kind of in my lane in the road that needs attention. After that, um, you know, I'm I'm working on a handful of projects that are usually, you know, analysis based. So... I'm figuring out what is going on in the war zone or with the people that I'm following. If if there's been a development, then maybe I need to write about that. If there's a threat, then I definitely need to write about that. And then comes the, the choice of how to get this information to the people that need to know it. So we usually say that being an intelligence analyst is kind of halfway between journalism and academia. So it's a ton of research. It's a ton of writing, like a researcher would. But as a journalist, you have to know what kind of written product is sort of best for this story. As a journalist, you might write an op-ed, you might write a hard news uh, report, you might write a profile. Um, same thing in intelligence analysis. Some products are sh- really short. Some are very long. Some are very, you know, blow by blow. Here's what just happened, half a page. Some are a longer paper that's got a very strategic kind of 50,000 foot outlook. So. Mm-hmm. The best analysts, they can see a story and they know immediately sort of what product that takes or what product is sort of best for that story. And then those products are going to go to different audiences. So some of them will go to the national security staff. Some will go to the entire intelligence community. Um, you know, 17 agencies and some will go to the president in the presidential daily brief. And you just kind of need to know what it is. You need to start the writing project. You should pull in five or six or seven other people you really respect and get their buy-in on this, like have them, have them point out, you know, what you're missing, or if it doesn't flow right, or if you're saying this in too many words, or if you don't need the sentence at all, or if maybe you're thinking about this a different you're not thinking about this the right way, or you even missed a report. Maybe somebody, you know, sitting in Berlin, they know something that you don't know. So the more people you pull in, the better. And they definitely stress that in training. Um, And another part of the day is briefing. So each intelligence analyst is essentially a world expert in their thin lane in the road. And um, I had the crazy fortune to have my lane in the road be ISIS and their ability to hit the West and the sort of mentality of radicalization behind that. And when I started on the line in 2012, no one cared about that because the group didn't really have a a sort of demonstrated interest in doing that. And they certainly didn't have the capabilities by 2013 and 14, it was sort of the most important thing going on in the building. And I just happened to be sitting in the chair (laughs) um, and be the person that, you know, people are starting to call on. So when it comes to briefing uh, different parts of the government are going to want sort of my expert research or my expert take on what's going on in their area of interest. and so at the peak of it it was probably about 3 times a week i was running to different parts of the building or getting in my car and driving to different buildings and you know getting into a room with a bunch of people who are maybe in uniform or you know they're definitely in really nice suits and they've got you know name tags or pins or something and they want to know what i know and i will give them my you know 5 10 15 minute spiel and then it's q and a and i'll answer as best as i can And depending on what security clearance they have, I will amend my comments appropriately. And then I go back. And I'm the best days are when the like a report that I'm working on gets published and sort of goes, you know, public, but among people who have security clearance. So I mean this can take months. And I had I had one project that took like 18 months, took over a year. Hmm. And it's just a really, really great day when it gets out there because. You get the feeling that, that all this work you put in using your brain really, really hard. It's now going into the brains of other really smart and talented people. And maybe, just maybe someone with some influence will make a decision that will save some lives. And that's really what it came down to at the end of the day. It was, it was, is the biggest honor of my life to work there. And it was also intellectually challenging and just a really, really great, great chapter in my life.
0: And what would it take for, A report to get declassified or sent out to the american public i mean literally as we are recording this i am seeing breaking news out there that there is an intelligence report that's just been released the saudi crown prince approved the 2018 killing of journalist jamal khashoggi which we've obviously heard about but now there is a quote intelligence report, which is obviously gone through the vetting process that you're describing. How, how does it get to that stage?
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's a couple ways that ha- that happens. Um, one, the the boring way is that many classified things will become declassified almost automatically after a certain amount of time. So um, your last host, uh, Mister Divine. The stuff that he worked on is now, you know, what, 25 years old. So some of that stuff can now come out. And, uh, the CIA actually has a magazine. And if you go through that magazine, it's a lot of stuff that is 25, 40, 50 years old because all that stuff has come out and is now declassified. But the, the process that you're referencing, um, either happens through a member of Congress or a member of the administration deciding the, that the public needs to know this. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of value in that. Um, we know from the Boston bombing how powerful the public can be in helping, you know, law enforcement and intelligence collection. And in the age of the Internet, this has never been, never been more true. And so there's a calculation made between um, congressional committees, between the administration, and between the public affairs department at the CIA and other intelligence agencies that decide sort of, you know, what needs to be public, how to roll it out as far as messaging goes, and, you know, just how much to put out there. And this happens, you know, weekly, almost daily. Um, and it's, it's a really important part of the process. Hmm.
0: So, I guess, after hearing all of this great review and build up, why did you leave?
1: Yeah. Good question. So I was in for five and a half years and, um, it felt like, you know, it felt like a good round number. It's not one year where you're wondering what happened and it's not 35 years where you, you can't do anything else. But, um, you know, like I said, it was the most, it was the most gratifying job I've ever had in my life by far. Um, but I was working on counterterrorism, Syria in Iraq and against this, against this group that had, that had sort of, you know, grasped our consciousness for a number of years and, and kept itself on the front page of every newspaper for a long time. And, you know, we tried lots of stuff. But at the end of the day, ISIS and Syria were both very, very tough nuts to crack from a strategic perspective. Um, You know, we could have sent the military in to, to do you know, a lot of rough stuff, but that would have caused more killing. And there was no guarantee that it would have stopped the other groups on the ground, the violent groups on the ground, from doing what they were doing. And on the other end of the spectrum, to, to take a hands-off approach, I mean, you're, you're letting an extremist group run wild, engage in sex trafficking, and, you know, executing people by sawing their heads off. I mean, it was, it was a hellscape in Syria for a long time there. So, after a handful of years dealing with this, I mean, it felt that we just didn't have the tools to do, to get the results that we wanted. And a lot of us felt kind of disillusioned about that. And that was, I'm not going to say it was anybody's fault. It's just, it's a fact of the world that the United States cannot do everything it wants to do, it can't form and shape the world in the way that it wants to. It's never been that way. And it's less that way than it, than it was a few decades ago. And uh, personally, just as, a, as an individual, I have a lot of interests, you know, and uh, I like to try new things. And the thought of being in the CIA for a few decades and had that be my career of my life, um, I didn't love the way that that felt. And a big part of it was the secrecy. So I'm, I'm a self-described extrovert. Um, I'm a night owl. I love meeting new people. And there's a lot of restrictions on that. When you're when you're an officer, you are not supposed to really talk about your work. You're not supposed to tell non-U.S. citizens about where you work. So in a in a way, you're starting off a lot of relationships based on a lie. And I don't know, it just it doesn't feel good. It, it kind of rubbed me. It, it's it wore on me as the years went on, and I didn't love the feeling, sort of being like that for the rest of my life. I mean, it, it, definitely when you start. That kind of stuff is is very cool. You get this like you're in a movie or you're in you're in 24, like you're that person. But you know, after a while it kind of wears off, and the frustrations of just like any job are kind of gonna set in. And you kind of balance those things out. And um, ISIS I knew was sort of on the wane. And I'm just I, I need to be working on the most important thing. And I knew that ISIS wasn't gonna be that for the foreseeable future. And I wanted to get into Something more impactful and something that, uh, you know, was more in the immediate hearts and minds of Americans. And I thought that getting into journalism and getting into writing about other topics would be would be something great for me. And here I am.
0: So I have to ask that it's, it's intriguing what you just said. Does that mean for those five years, no one knew outside of your maybe anyone? Did anyone know you were working for the CIA during those years? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, there were. So there are overt officers and covert officers. And so I was overt as an analyst, as many analysts are. And so I was generally allowed to tell people that I trusted and allowed to tell American citizens. I was highly discouraged from telling non-citizens about where I worked. Um, but, I mean, everyone's got their own kind of personal sense of security, how much they want to reference that in relation to themselves, how much they want to sort of, you know, put on the internet or even even put in a text message about what their work is. And so I would say I was pretty tight on, on how, you know, tightly I kept that to my chest. I, you know, if I made a new friend or if I started dating somebody, I would I would not tell them until a year or two or until a certain level of trust. So, yeah, there was a small handful of people, family, close friends. But, I mean, I, I dated people and I had I had very close friends that I just didn't feel like, you know, the right thing to do. So, I didn't and to this day. Well, not to this day. People know now. But uh, <laughs> up until very recently, it was it was a pretty big secret.
0: <laughs> and so, you already referenced it. You left and became a journalist. What kind of stuff have you been working on and are working on?
1: Yeah. So I started out doing a whole bunch of stuff. I was actually a lifestyle writer in Los Angeles for a year. That was really fun. I would go to new bars as they opened up and taste all the cocktails and then try (laughs) to write about it. That was great. Um, But I eventually got on with a hyper-local newspaper during the uh, 2018 election cycle. And I got got to write about a lot of uh, ballot initiatives in the state of California. And I caught on with a magazine and I got to write um, op-eds and features there about healthcare and about uh, politics and a lot of other cool stuff. I was really all over the map. I did some cultural comparisons, comparison work between uh, U.S. society and other foreign countries. Um, but recently, I've gotten into opinion writing, which I have to admit is my favorite. Um, so for work, uh, there are... A large number of politicians, former politicians, um, CEO executives, and bureaucrats who work in the government who have something to say—they want to say it publicly—but you know they haven't taken a writing class for 30 years since they were in college, and so I help those people kind of craft their message and then get it out there into newspapers, magazines, and websites. And it's been—it's been really good. It's been really fun.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is rewarding. And, and of course, now you have an op-ed this week in the L.A. Times. And let's let's bring it full circle with that. So, obviously, this, the piece, which I recommend everyone to read, shows the parallels between the Islamic State and QAnon. And certainly, um, on its face, that's got to scare people. Because if you're in QAnon, you probably don't want to be compared to ISIS, for one thing. <laughs> Um, and if you're not, you're probably frightened at the idea that there is something as potent and um, evil. I mean, I, I would think it. I, I don't use that word often, but I would think ISIS was evil, especially with all the videos that we saw of beheadings and such. Yep. Um, but yet, you also say in the piece, and you've said in this this interview that. Uh, QAnon often comes across as normal, respectable people. So, how do people square that if they see uh, the folks in ISIS who are, you know, holding someone tied up and beheading them with someone who is allegedly normal in QAnon?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I will go out on a limb and say that the people actually doing the beheadings in ISIS. Those are not the normal everyday members. Those were the ones, those were the super zealots, right? And you might say that every group has super zealots and QAnon is no exception. So we might say that the super zealots in QAnon were the ones that broke into the Capitol and, you know, tried to, you know, were banging on Nancy Pelosi's door. But there's, there's a pretty big universe of other QAnon adherents that are just sitting at home trying to, you know, decode, decode the Q drops, where their messages, you know, sent out on the 8chan website, where people try to kind of decode them. And, you know, if enough of the words in the message, you know, start with a certain letter, that is the eighth letter of the alphabet, that, you know, that is part of the code that's trying to convey information to all the Q adherents about something major that's going to happen, you know, over in the course of, you know, United States history. So, there are, you know, those people, they have a psychological need that this QAnon thing, phenomenon is filling. And otherwise, they seem like perfectly normal people. They've got normal jobs, they're lawyers, they're real estate agents, they're teachers, they're they're firefighters, they're police officers, they're army veterans. Um, But so my article, I say that Um, These people need to have an openness to metaphysical beliefs where, you know, things that cannot be explained through logic are present and active in our worlds. They uh, generally have a penchant toward responding with a modicum of anger when they, when they see something new that kind of frustrates them. Um, And they've got a sort of grievance. They have, They have expectations about their life, either conscious or subconscious, that kind of weren't attained, that weren't fulfilled. And so these three things, you're not going to know that a person has these just by sort of chatting with them in the supermarket, that people can seem extremely normal and even delightful, pleasant, smart, respectable people. They just have this very unique cocktail of characteristics That are also, you know, time sensitive. Like a year ago, maybe these people would have, you know, not dove into QAnon. Uh, but it just so happens this year, we're all locked up in our homes and we're all on the internet way longer and way more than we were before. And so to fill that sort of psychological gap, to get, to sort of scratch that itch, to get that psychological delight, this is just the perfect sort of panacea for those itches for 30 million people. So I I just, I want, I don't want people to think of every QAnon person as a deranged psychopath because it's it's just, (laughs) it's not really the best way to see these people. I mean, Art, you and I, and your listeners, we all need to, we all need to play a role in helping craft, you know, policy to, you know, help this movement and movements like it from losing power, because there is, there's, violence behind this movement. There's bigotry and anti-Semitism behind this movement. And the the weaker this movement is, the better. And we all should be as clear-eyed as possible about who these people are. And the Q supporters that were at the Capitol Hill riots, um, I don't believe that that represents most of the 30 million people that are in Q. I think most of them are fine people that have lost their way psychologically and are just home on the internet Sadly, estranged from their families, but they think that after the storm, so to speak, is completed, that there will be a big reunification between them and their families. Once everyone else, you, me, and the people who don't believe in Q, once we see that these, you know, q QAnon adherents, they were right all along. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think your listeners think that's going to happen either. <laughs> but these people, in a very warped way, have the best of intentions, and um, you know. Some people are right. Some people are wrong. I don't think that they are right. But um, I don't want to pass judgment too prematurely.
0: I, I just don't understand why they don't come up with a better story. I mean, it's such a disgusting like cover story or, or, or belief or mantra, whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah. and what I find so interesting about it is you mentioned in your piece about how most of these people are um, Christian. And, you know, obviously Christianity is a very, very broad spectrum. And, you know, there are evangelicals, there are Catholics and mainline Protestants and all the like. Um, why can't these folks just be sort of content with their evangelical Christianity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you said in your last episode during your takeaway uh you 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 equated you know cults and religions yeah and i thought you you did that very eloquently and there are of course a lot of parallels there and um there is so specifically in evangelical christianity there's a lot of support for president trump so the now former president trump who is a philanderer he is a cheat he is fraudster. He is categorically an immoral person. Yet, the evangelicals have sort of gotten behind him. That's really mystified a lot of people. And it's it's my contention that in the subconscious of a lot of evangelicals, they feel shame and guilt about this. And that shame and guilt is going to add to their vulnerability uh, for conspiracy theories. Suddenly, slowly, over you know 2019 and 2020, that Christian belief that they have, it's not making them feel as moral as it used to. Hmm. And that creates a vacuum. And that vacuum needs to be filled. And these calculations are going on subconsciously. And we all do this. We, we all make subconscious calculations that we don't really have access to with our cerebral cortex that does the, the logical reasoning. And I mean, you do this, I do this too. Um, and then think about it this way. So, I mean, you're a Catholic. I was also raised Catholic too. And there's some non logical stuff in, in the Catholic religion. There's some metaphysical stuff that Catholics believe. There's some stuff in the Old Testament that probably can't have, can't happen according to the laws of physics. Um, there are virgin births. There's, you know, fire and brimstone. There's angels coming down and speaking with prophets. There's a lot of that stuff, right? But Catholics and you know religious zealots. That is kind of background music. It's not front and center. It's not the thing upon which they judge the benefits of their belief. And same thing with every religion. I mean, there's a thousand. There's thousands of gods in Hinduism. Um, there's a lot of you know seemingly wacky stuff in the Mormon religion. But if you are in that religion, that is not front and center for you. What is front and center is the amazing feeling of community, the feeling of morality, the feeling of ordering the universe around you, which often looks very chaotic. It's, um, it's a guarantee that you're a good person and that you have other good, good people who respect you and see you as a part of their community. That stuff is extremely, extremely powerful for the human psyche. And so. You and I who don't believe in QAnon, we're looking at their ridiculous beliefs about, you know, that they believe that Hillary Clinton needs babies and we're judging them on that. Meanwhile, the benefits they get are based on the morality they feel by, you know, hoping to take down an evil cabal and introduce America to a utopia. And if you reverse that, non-Christians might look at Christianity and say, well, you can't crucify a man and then have him come back back to life in three days and then ascend into heaven and just say that that's okay because Catholics, Christians, that's not front and center for us. It's, it's how we act and how we feel being Christians.
0: Yeah, that's, that is probably the best way I've heard it described. And that, that really makes, I think it accessible to the masses as to why there is this kind of kind of belief, and it's it's true. I mean, I'm sure Q devotees would say stuff that I believe in is 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 nutty and and whatnot. Um, yeah. But you know, it's it's uh, that is a that is another topic to be de- <laughs> debated for another day. That's, another day. That's not something I'm tackling here, but. Um, Last thing I wanted to ask is, do you think, based on your observations and your knowledge of psychological goings on, do you think QAnon is really taking over the Republican
1: Party? Yeah, another good question. I do not. I don't think they they are or they will. Um, And I arrived at that deduction based on a lot of things that we were talking about. So. Religion, religious belief, and religious adherence, um, it relies on a a number of things to sort of stay robust. Uh, You can think of it as a table. So if a table's got, you know, a number of legs, if you remove one leg, the table can still stand. If you remove most of the legs or all the legs, the table falls. So QAnon is a table and it's had three of its legs taken away. Uh, one of them is that their leader, Trump, is not president anymore. <laughs> right, And so a big part of Trumpism is his power, is his you know, wielding power, um, no matter what anyone else does or thinks about it. And so that is going to delete and nullify a lot of the pride and strength that QAnon believers sort of were infused with um, as a virtue of their belief. The second thing that's been taken away is that a, a lot of its QAnon's main predictions have not become true, so now that in- introduces doubt. It introduces a feeling of silliness, frankly. <laughs> and uh, you know, CNN's actually done a lot of great interviews the last few days of people who've lost their their family members of QAnon and people who've left QAnon, and a lot of them are saying exactly this: they're like, too many of the predictions just weren't coming true, and you know? I can't, I can't get into this. Anymore. <laughs> And the third thing is that they're losing their sense of community because the major social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, are are banning uh, anything related to QAnon. And we all know from what we know about religion is that the community that comes along with religion is one of the most powerful things um, connected to religious belief. So now you've got these three legs of the table. that, And this table is, I think, is very wobbly. And, you know, the, the, the hardcore guys and gals, they're going to, you know, switch to 8chan, they're going to switch to the dark web, and other websites that we don't even know about yet. But a lot of them won't, a lot of them don't know the internet that well, and they will see it as too much of a labor um, for the benefit. And a lot of people are going to fall off. In regards to the GOP that you brought up, um, I think that Trumpism, Trumpism is a lot of things. It's not just one thing. And many of the factors uh, that uphold Trumpism are going to fizzle away because they're not seen as beneficial, but a handful of things that are beneficial are going to stay. And I think um, from behavior that we've seen from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is famously you know our resident QAnon believer in Congress, um, I think she will probably remain on an island as a QAnon person. But her behavior and her attitude of sort of sort of being a, a walking middle finger to anything that she kind of sniffs out as being liberal or something she doesn't like. Unfortunately, I think that is going to be a robust part of the GOP uh, going forward. But I do not think that QAnon itself is going to take over the Republican Party, thankfully.
0: That would be good. I will say that. I think I think most Republicans, most Democrats, most anyone would would be happy with that at this point. So I hope so. I'm going to, you know, take that Prediction to the bank, if you don't
1: mind. Uh, <laughs> Please, be <give> my guest.
0: <laughs> so, um, well, Brent Giannata is the author of a fresh piece in the Los Angeles Times this week. You must check it out, titled What I Learned About Islamic State Applies to QAnon 2. Brent, thank you very much for joining me in the Nexus.
1: Art, right, thanks for having me. It was great. We will be right back.
0: As we approach the one-year anniversary when the global pandemic was declared, what kind of shape are we in? In the United States, we passed the 500,000 deaths mark, and as followers of this podcast know, my father was one of those who passed away because of the coronavirus. We've come a long way from thinking we would be locked down for three weeks and then back to normal. It has been a bizarre, dispiriting, truly saddening time in our lives, even if you didn't lose someone or get sick yourself. But there is hope on the horizon. After bashing President Trump for his disastrous response to COVID-19, I give credit where it is due for Operation Warp Speed. This was the program that cut the red tape for approving vaccines, which usually take years. The program captured the spirit of World War II innovation when necessity was the mother of invention. Trump deserves credit for allowing the vaccines to come to market rapidly. Yet his initial rollout of the vaccines was marred by all sorts of logistical problems that I cannot begin to understand. I've concluded that the vaccine distribution is like the electoral college. Fifty states all doing different things. Is there a steady supply in Washington, D.C.? Well, don't expect the same in Virginia. Just because there are doses in New York, then that don't mean you'll find them in Jersey. Don't get me started on what qualifies as essential workers. Does being a staff member at a university qualify you as essential to receiving this vaccine? Apparently it does, as I know a couple, both about 22 years old, who work at colleges and were among the first to get vaccinated. Yet even that was more legitimate than the unpleasant phenomenon I see of people jumping the line by being at the right place and right time and getting vaccinated. What do I mean by this? I've lost count of people posting photos on social media usually Facebook or Instagram, of receiving the vaccine. In the comments, people will inevitably ask, how'd you get it? And they will respond something like, I knew a pharmacist who had extra doses. Or I happened to be walking by a pharmacy and they were about to close and offered me the vaccine so I couldn't say no. Or my spouse got vaccinated and the clinic opened it up to spouses and partners. Yay! invariably, all these people I'm talking about are healthy, young, and with no pre-existing conditions. And then you have the story of my mother in New Jersey, who turned 78 this week and lamented to me on her birthday that she couldn't find the vaccine anywhere. Mom registered on New Jersey's portal and with local pharmacies like CVS and Rite Aid, along with a local hospital. The frustration in her voice was palpable, and then I contrasted it with those who gleefully gamed the system to get dosed. She's 78, they're 28. Shouldn't the system be bending over backwards to make sure if there are extra doses, they call someone like her? I don't blame the people who have gotten the vaccine before those more deserving. If there is one thing the pandemic has taught me is that everyone is out for themselves, and there is no such thing as a social compact. If someone can get the vaccine, why not? And when you think about it, that pharmacy who gives away a spare unused dose before closing time should make the extra effort to call an elderly person or someone with pre-existing conditions. Vaccines should not be wasted, of course, but it's the cockeyed system we have that needs fixing. One other note I would like to announce, I am now going to be publishing on the Substack platform. You can go to artswift.substack.com to see a brand new newsletter for me, also named The Nexus. I will be cross-promoting episodes like this one, but mainly offer longer written pieces on topics that interest me. Politics, news, current affairs, music, movies, and sports. If you like my writing style and commentary, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. That's artswift.substack.com. It's free, and I promise not to spam you with too many posts. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Leave us a review as well. We will see you next time and be well.